We are in Mark chapter 5 this morning. We are finishing up this chapter as we've been working our way through the gospel of Mark. Uh, The word hope is a word that means the expectation of something good or desirable. It is an expectation because it is not yet a present reality. Even the Bible itself says that hope that is seen, it it is not hope. And so hope talks about something that we want to occur in the future, Thus, it is good or desirable, and we have the expectation that it might happen. That is why every New Year's, we are instinctively hopeful about another year. We are going to have our greatest year. This is finally going to be the year that is different from all the others, and this is going to be our year. But of course, you know that that hope does not always remain. We find ourselves today on the last day of the first quarter of this year, and by now the hope that you had for the new year perhaps is long gone. Perhaps you would have to admit today that the hope is not the word you would use to describe your future. Maybe it is because of some disappointment. The expectation that you had has not materialized, and the odds of it materializing are growing smaller, and therefore you have given up the expectation, and thus you have lost your hope. Or maybe it's because of some old circumstances, circumstances that you had hoped by now would be changed, but they are still the same, and therefore you are losing hope that it's ever going to be different Perhaps it is physical illness or suffering. Maybe there has been a physical setback in your year, one that you did not see coming, but now you must live every day with the new reality of this physical ailment, and thus your future is not as promising as it once was. The cloud of uncertainty physically is hanging over you, and you find yourself losing hope. Silently, even right now, maybe you are thinking to yourself, if you only knew what I've been going through, then you might agree with me that I have reason to lose hope and I have reason to be hopeless. In fact, if your object of hope is your circumstances or your bank account or your health, then I can promise you you will lose hope and become somewhat hopeless. But I remind you that we met a man last week who by all appearances, was a hopeless man. I mean, that was a man whose life was going nowhere. He was demon-possessed, and he was living among the dead. That is, he was cast outside of society, living with, uh, in the caves with those who had been buried there, and he was a man who had no interaction with other people. He had no future until, of course, that day when Jesus stepped out of a boat And he changed his life forever, reminding us that Jesus is Lord over demons. Today we're going to look at the other two stories in Mark chapter 5, and we're going to see that both of these situations likewise appear to be hopeless. In fact, without Jesus in the equation, these lives are indeed desperate and they are equally hopeless to the man that we talked about last week. In fact, some people have gone to calling Mark chapter 5, St. Jude's chapter. Did you know that St. Jude in Catholic theology is the patron saint of the lost causes, the patron saint of the desperate and hopeless causes? And that is what we find in this chapter, three stories 
that appear to be hopeless, but by the time we get to the end of the chapter, all three situations are filled with hope because they have met Jesus. Now, I recognize that many of us met Jesus in the sense of salvation many years ago, and yet we too can take our eyes off of Christ and thus wind up losing our hope. And so for you who have been saved for a number of years, I hope this is a reminder today to fix our eyes on Jesus, and there we will find hope for the hopeless. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him or about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James, They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw the commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Now we see in this story what we have already talked about once, and that is this sandwiching technique that Mark uses. It is a, it is a literary technique where you are embedding one story into another. And we talked about the fact that when Mark does that, he does it for the purpose of comparison, to draw out the, the likenesses between these two stories. And the greatest compar- comparison that we're going to find is that the woman who is unnamed is going to demonstrate faith to the point of being healed, 
And that is going to be an example to Jairus of the kind of faith that Jesus is calling on him to have as well. And so we are going to start with the story in the middle, the story of the unnamed woman and her disease. And from this, we are going to discover that Jesus is indeed Lord over disease, which also means that there is hope for the hopeless in the face of your physical suffering and disease. Jesus has returned to the west side of the Sea of Galilee, where crowds have once again surrounded him. He might actually be back in Capernaum, though we are not told specifically that detail. The crowds on the other side of the sea, you remember, urged him to leave when he cast the demons out and they went into the herd of pigs and they raced down the slope and into the sea and drowned. The crowd wanted him gone. But when he comes back to the west side of the Sea of Galilee, back in Palestine, the crowds welcome him there. And among the crowd is this unnamed woman who, in all honesty, has no business being there. She has suffered with a continual bleeding issue for 12 years, which means that she is unclean. And keep that idea in your mind because that idea of uncleanliness runs throughout this entire chapter. She is not only unclean, she is unwelcome, and therefore it is unlawful for her to be among this crowd. Much like that demon-possessed man, she is an outcast in society because anyone she comes in contact with, because she is unclean, she will make them unclean merely by touching them, and then they will have to go through seven days of purification before they can re-enter society and re-enter worship. So she too was a religious and social outcast and lived her life that way all of those 12 years. And all of that was on top of the physical suffering from whatever was causing the bleeding. She had gone to numerous doctors seeking a cure, and you know full well how you can spend a lot of money doing that in the process, which indeed she had done. And all of this speaks of her desperate situation. Many of you know how frustrating and desperate we can become going from one doctor to another trying to find answers, hearing one doctor say one thing and another saying another, all the while never getting any better but only getting worse. It builds up frustration and your money begins to dwindle, which further builds up the frustration to the point that this woman is now in a hopeless situation. All hope is gone because in spite of all of her efforts, her condition has done nothing but get worse, and in spite of all the money she has spent in the process. But there is always hope for the hopeless when Jesus enters into the equation. And so this woman has heard about Jesus. We do not know how much, but the text tells us that she has heard the reports about Jesus. So evidently, she had heard some stories about his ability to heal, and she believed them enough in her desperate condition to act upon them, even if it meant breaking the law, even if it meant risking others being ceremonially unclean along with her. And so there was a common belief in that day and age that if someone had power and authority, that power and authority was transferred to the very garments that they wore. And therefore, if she could just touch the garments of Jesus, she could potentially be healed. And so she sneaks up from behind, pushing her way through the crowd, 
and touches probably the tassels on Jesus' outer garment, and she is instantly healed. Immediately, Mark says, and we've already seen that that is a favorite word of Mark, immediately the miracle occurs, and she knows instantly that she has got the miracle that she wanted. Just one touch after 12 years and numerous doctor visits and multiple insurance bills, she has finally got what she so desperately wanted, and it occurs just with a touch from Jesus. But Jesus knows something has happened too. Jesus knows power has gone out of him and that someone has been healed. Now, he could have gone on and just ignored it, He could have been content to know that someone had received his power and uh, his healing, and he could have gone on because he had serious matters to attend to. Remember, he is on the way to Jairus' house to potentially heal his young daughter, but instead he stops. He doesn't mind the interruption. He doesn't mind the time spent with her. After all, he wants a personal encounter with her, not just an anonymous healing. And so he asks, who touched me? Now, it is possible that he did not know this information. It is possible that in his humanity, he did not know this information. It's also possible, being divine, that he did, in fact, know full well who this woman was who had touched him, and therefore he is just calling on her, knowing who she was, to come forward and admit the truth. But at any rate, his disciples thought it an absurd question. Remember, we've already been told that the crowds were thronging around him and pressing in on him, and now Jesus says, who touched me? And the disciples are thinking to themselves, of course someone touched you. It wasn't just one woman. There was multiple people that probably touched you, all incidentally and all accidentally, because they are all pushing in to try to get closer and closer to you. And therefore, there would be no way to identify the culprit nor any reason to do so. But now the woman is filled with fear. After all, remember, she knows that touching someone else, especially a religious leader of this status, makes them unclean. Is Jesus angry that he is now unclean because she touched him and therefore she is due for a rebuke? She doesn't know exactly what's going to happen, but she comes forward, kneels down. Remember, we saw that in the demon-possessed story as well. They knelt before Jesus, even as this woman does, and she comes clean with the whole story. And in response, he addresses her affectionately and says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Now, it is sometimes difficult in these stories to differentiate between physical healing and spiritual salvation. The reason that is difficult is because the word that is translated made her well is also the word in the New Testament for saved. So it literally could be translated, he saved her. And so that word is interchangeable. Sometimes it refers to physical healing, sometimes to spiritual healing. I think in all three of these stories in Mark chapter 5, we have evidence of both occurring. That in all three of these stories, they are not only changed physically, but they are also saved spiritually. Because Jesus does, in fact, speak to her and says, your faith has made you well, and he tells her to go in peace. Peace is not what we think of. When we think of peace, it's an absence of conflict. Jesus is not saying to this woman, I want you to go, and from now on my hope for you is that you not have any conflict in the relationships that you have in your life. That's not what he's talking about. 
New Testament peace is a kind of peace that goes far beyond that. It is a well-being which can only be truly found in a salvation relationship with Christ, which I think then gives evidence that this woman was not only healed from her bleeding issue, but Jesus saved her as well. Now, this does give us an opportunity to talk about the connection between faith and healing. We've done that already, but it's not not bad to do so again. In this story, Jesus clearly makes the connection. He says, your faith has made you well. Now, what kind of faith did she have? She certainly must have had a young or what we might refer to as an immature faith. She had enough faith to know that the stories were real that she had heard and therefore to act upon them. And certainly we can attribute some of that to her desperate condition. She's got nothing to lose. But the fact is she does. She breaks the law and she touches him among a crowd because she believes there is a possibility that she could be healed. Now, I think also we could say that her faith is mixed with a bit of of magic or superstition. It's not a, a pure kind of faith, but it's enough of faith for Jesus to say, your faith has made you well. But at the same time, I need to caution us that this is not always the case. There are other stories that we have dealt with where there is seemingly no connection between faith and healing. So sometimes there is that direct connection, as we see here, and sometimes there is not. But I do want to caution you, lest you misunderstand, and then having misunderstood, become disillusioned and ultimately lose hope. There is no New Testament promise that a believer will always be well. There is no New Testament guarantee that if you have strong faith, then you will be whole physically. There are simply not those promises in the Bible. Yes, Jesus is Lord over disease, and yes, Jesus continues to have the power to eradicate disease, but there is no promise that He will in your case nor mine. And as we talked about some time ago, the truth that He has uh, healed us from our greatest disease. If you are a child of His, you have been adopted into His family, you have been saved, then He has already eradicated the greatest disease you have, and that is the disease of sin. So there is nothing wrong with praying for healing. There is nothing wrong with going to doctors in search of answers and healings. There is nothing wrong with crying out in your desperation, asking God to heal you. But don't set yourself up for spiritual disaster by obligating Jesus to heal you because of your faith or because of your service or because of your long track record of church attendance. There is a fine line between faith and belief and obligation and demand. And continue to remember that God in Christ has indeed healed you from the greatest disease known to man, a disease far worse than any doctor can cure. So continue to rejoice in your spiritual health regardless of your physical status. Jesus is Lord over disease, whether we're healthy or whether we are sick. The power He demonstrated in these stories proves that. It is not our experience that proves the power of Jesus. It is the revealed Word of God that does that, and He has proven here, as we saw last week, that He is Lord over demons, and it is proven in this story of the unnamed woman that He is now Lord over disease, which means there is hope for the hopeless. 
If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, there is no reason for you to lose your hope in the midst of physical suffering or pain. Well, let's move on to the other story. In our third hopeless situation, we find a a man and his daughter, and we find that Jesus is now not just Lord over demons and not just Lord over disease. He is now Lord over death. So as soon as he gets back on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, again, perhaps in Capernaum, he is met by a ruler of the synagogue. And if indeed we are in Capernaum, then I don't think it's a stretch to say that this is not the first meeting between Jairus and Jesus. No doubt their paths would have crossed already, and he would have known something about him. This might be why his name is mentioned. Have you noticed that Mark does not often mention the names of the people involved in the stories? But in this case, he does. Now, the synagogue ruler was in charge of the town synagogue. This is not the temple. That's down in Jerusalem. He is not a priest He is not offering sacrifices. He is very much like what I do. That is, he is over the physical buildings of the synagogue. He is in charge of their upkeep. He is in charge of the security. And he is in charge of the corporate gathering for worship. That is, he is in charge of the preaching and teaching. He is in charge of the reading of Scripture. He is in charge of the prayers. He is in charge over all of the corporate aspects of the worship of the people of God. Now, he is a layperson. This is not a religious professional. This is not what he does for a living. He is a layperson. In fact, all of the people who did those things I just mentioned, whether it be reading Scripture or teaching or or praying, all of those were lay people, and this man was in charge of overseeing all of that. His would have been a coveted position. He would have been respected in the community, perhaps even been wealthy or at least above the average. And he comes to Jesus, and just like the other two stories, he falls uh, on his knees at the feet of Jesus out of respect for who Jesus is. Now, here I think it is more than respect. I think it is admiration. I think it is submission. I think it is a recognition of who Jesus is, though, of course, he doesn't know that completely. And he, too, is desperate, even hopeless, we might say. Because his daughter, and Luke tells us it is his only daughter, is so sick she is near the point of death. And if you've ever had a seriously sick child, and gratefully I have not, but if you've ever had a seriously sick child, you know how desperate and urgent the situation becomes. You feel helpless in the face of their suffering. You wish that you could change places with them, though of course you know that that's not a possibility. And so you are relegated to often sitting beside their bedside, waiting, trusting and hoping that the doctors know what they are doing, and praying, of course, but in those long nights of sleeplessness, you are beginning to wonder if the prayers are heard by anyone, or certainly if they are going to be answered. All of the while in this desperate and urgent situation, fighting against losing hope though those feelings of hopelessness seem to be never far away. This man, too, exhibits faith, for it is clear that he believes that just a touch from Jesus will heal his daughter. And that is, in fact, exactly what he says. His daughter's condition is critical, and so he tells Jesus, if you will just come with me and touch my daughter, she will be made well and she will live. And so that's exactly what Jesus does. Now, did you notice at this point, there's no dialogue from Jesus. It just says he went 
with him. And in fact, that's the end of the first story before we get the embedded story of this unnamed woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. And by the way, did you notice the little girl is 12 years old at the end of the story? And the woman's been bleeding for 12 years, another similarity that we're meant to catch as we put these two stories together. So Jesus uh, says he, goes, he will go with him or he, he makes the motion to go with him. And then there is this interruption. This woman who comes and wants or does get her healing. And while she is no doubt filled with joy now at being healed after 12 years, and while no doubt the crowd is once again amazed at what has transpired before them, there is one person in this story at this point who is not happy whatsoever. Jairus is in an urgent situation, and now Jesus has paused to deal with this outcast in society, and Jairus, no doubt, recognizes this as a needless delay. He is frustrated. He is impatient. I mean, this woman has been sick for 12 years. What's another 30 or 45 minutes going to harm? Why can't Jesus go on with him and get to the house and see to his young daughter? I know it's one of the struggles of my life in ministry, and perhaps it is one of yours, that we have our day planned out. We know what we want to do. We know how long it's going to take to do it. And so whether we write it all down or not, we have a plan for what we want to accomplish that day. And then someone comes in and interrupts our plan. Someone comes into our schedule and takes up our time unannounced. And we view it as an interruption and we become impatient and we're trying to get rid of them as quickly as possible so that we can get back to what we had planned to do that day. Jesus does not think along these lines. He is not hurried to the house of the synagogue ruler. He is not impatient with the woman that he is dealing with. He is not going to cast her aside as an outcast of society, even for one of the most respected men in town, because he wants to have a conversation with her and deal with her. It is a subtle reminder that all people are important not just the influential, not just the ones that we think are important, not just the ones that we think can do something in return for us. It is a reminder that everyone is important and all of us need to hear and heed that reminder. But this delay, this interruption, has indeed proved fatal to the daughter of Jairus. While Jesus is still speaking to the newly healed woman, Messengers come from home to arrive with the grim news. Your daughter is dead. Stop troubling the teacher. There is no use bothering him any longer. There is nothing that can be done by him or by anyone else now because death is final. Do you hear the hopelessness in that, in that wording? Stop bothering the teacher. There's no use troubling him. No one can do anything about it now. Now, when it comes to resurrections in the New Testament, not, in, not including Jesus's, of course, but when it comes to resurrections apart from his, Lazarus gets all the publicity, doesn't he? Maybe you hadn't even heard of Jairus' young 12-year-old daughter. But do you remember the story of, of Lazarus as well? Uh, he is a good friend of Jesus. His sisters Mary and Martha had told Jesus that he was sick, and yet Jesus delayed his arrival so much so that Lazarus has died even as he delays the arrival here. And so Lazarus is dead, and when Jesus finally arrives after three days or so, they, they are mad at him. 
And he goes to the tomb, and he, he tells them to roll the stone away. And you remember what, what they tell him? They say, Lord, it's going to stink. I mean, by now, the smell is not going to be pretty. And we see the hopelessness in that statement, too. There's no hope now. He's gone. The same thing we see here. No use troubling the teacher uh, any longer. The word for overheard there is a word that can mean several different things. Obviously, overhear means you, you hear what someone else is saying. But it's also a word that can mean that he simply ignored it. He heard it, and he ignored it. Or he heard it and discounted the truth of it because he knew what he was about to do. So it wasn't just that he sort of mistakenly overheard like we might do at a restaurant trying to listen in on someone's conversation. Jesus heard what they said and ignored it because he knew what he was about to do. There was no coming back from death, or so they thought, and yet Jesus looks at Jairus, or Jairus, I keep pronouncing it different ways, so pronounce it any way you want. He looks at Jairus, and for the first time, we hear dialogue from Jesus in this story, and Jesus says to Jairus, do not fear, only believe. I have that underlined in my study Bible, and we could certainly camp out here for quite a while. That one statement, do not fear, only believe, if put into practice into various aspects of our lives, would have a dynamic impact upon those areas. Are we usually filled with fear or filled with faith? If I were to ask you which of those two things most characterizes your life, would it be faith or would it be fear? Do we fix our eyes on Jesus who, as we're seeing in this chapter, is Lord over all? Or are our eyes fixated on what is in front of us, resulting in discouragement from our circumstances and fear for what lies ahead and ultimately maybe even hopelessness? It is easy for me to say, have faith, not fear. But it's a whole lot harder to actually consistently apply that in the face of our various challenges in life. Faith can be defined as trusting Jesus despite everything to the contrary. In other words, the only difference between faith and fear, or the major difference, is that faith has eyes to look at Jesus, where fear, we have our eyes focused on our circumstances. And so do our circumstances dominate, or are we looking unto Jesus? He is asking this religious man to have faith in the face of death. Remember, he's just seen the example of the unnamed woman. He saw her faith and how that led to her healing, but now he's being asked to have faith in the midst or in the face of death. Sure, I believe that Jesus can heal. There's been plenty of stories about that. But is there any hope when it comes to death? Well, we're often asked to do that very same thing. When you go to a funeral, especially a graveside, you are being asked to believe and asked to have faith in the face of death. We are staring death in the face at a graveside as we're looking at a coffin that we know is going to be lowered into the ground a few moments later, and we're wondering, is there anything beyond the grave? Oh, I realize we have our cliches that any good pastor or friend is going to throw out there. It's things like, well, they're not suffering any longer. You can take solace in that. Or, you know, you're going to see him again one day. That's, that's the blessing. You're going to see him again. And those things are true. I'm not minimizing those things. 
But can we sit by a graveside and have faith in what Christ has done and who Christ is and what he has said and believe that he is indeed Lord over death? It was Jesus himself who said, if you believe, though you die, yet you shall live. And that's what we will be celebrating in the weeks to come. But let's go back to our story and see how indeed Jesus' power does transcend the grave so that He is not just Lord over demons. He is not just Lord over disease. He is, in fact, Lord over death. So Jesus goes to this man's house, and for the first time in the gospel narrative, He separates the three that we will tend to call His inner circle, Peter, James, and John. He invites them with the the girl's parents to go in the house with them, and when they get in the house, there is this uncontrollable scene of of weeping and wailing. It's mourning. I told you last Sunday night in our study of Micah in chapter 1 that uh, grief was expressed differently in the first century than it is now. For us, grief tends to be private. We don't want to grieve in front of other people. In fact, you will hear people say at a funeral home, you know, you got to be strong for the rest of the family. We don't want to grieve in front of anybody. And if we do go into a funeral home and hear loud moaning, we are very uncomfortable with that because we are simply accustomed to expressing our grief privately, and when we are public, we are doing it quietly. Not so in the first century. In the first century, it was the louder, the better. The louder you wept, the louder you moaned and lamented, the more you were expressing your love and your loss for the one that has gone. And in this culture, they had professional mourners. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine growing up? And when people ask you in elementary school, what do you want to be when you grow up? say, I would love to be a professional mourner. It just sounds like a great idea to be able to go into the homes of strangers and weep and wail over their loss. But that's what they did. They hired people. In fact, an extra-biblical source that is outside of the Bible tells us that even the poorest of people were expected to hire two flute players and one weeping woman. And we've already acknowledged that Jairus is probably not the poorest person in this community. So he's probably got more. And so when Jesus comes into the house, there are the family there, and there are these professional mourners who are clapping and shouting and singing songs of lament. It is a situation that we would be entirely uncomfortable with. And Jesus says, what is going on? Now, he knows what's going on, but he says, what is transpiring here? The girl is not dead. She is asleep. And there have been some who have run with that statement and said that this is not a story of a resurrection. This is simply a story of a girl who fell into a coma, and Jesus resuscitated her, not resurrected her. But that's not what Jesus means by that. These professional mourners, and certainly mom and dad, are not going to mistake a a coma for death. This girl really is dead, but Jesus simply knows what he is going to do, and it is a picture for us of what is going to happen to him and ultimately what is going to happen to us. So driving them out, he takes the girl by the hand and tells her to arise. He does so in Aramaic. Those were the two words that you didn't understand. That's, that's Aramaic, which was the, the language of the common people after the Babylonian exile. Then, of course, in the Greek New Testament, it's translated into, into Greek, 
and for us it is translated into English. And so the girl obeys, she arises, she walks and eats. Those terms are there to show us that this is a complete resurrection, and naturally everybody is amazed at what they have just witnessed. And then we are confronted with this messianic secret again. And this time, quite frankly, it seems absurd. Jesus says, don't tell anyone what has happened. How can they not? How can the crowd not find out what has happened? They've just had people in their home who were mourning the loss of this girl. They are no doubt going to see the girl out of the house playing in a day or two, and they are going to know that she is alive again. So some scholars say, well, what Jesus really means here is that uh, they don't have to give the details, but clearly people are going to know that she's alive. Or they want, he, he wants them to remain quiet for just a short period of time so that he and his disciples have time to get out of town because he's not there to be a spectacle. Jesus is not performing miracles in order to pack out soccer stadiums or increase the treasury. Jesus is doing these things because he loves people and has compassion for them and desires to minister to them so that they are not only physically well but spiritually whole. There's no doubt that this was a hopeless situation. Once again, until Jesus walked into the front door of that house and showed that he is Lord over death. Now, none of this is a promise that you will be healed of all your diseases. None of this is a promise that one day when you die, you will be resurrected back into this life. These are stories designed to show us the power of Jesus over demons, over disease, and over death. These are stories designed to teach us that there is hope for the hopeless when Jesus enters the equation. They were all victims of desperate circumstances who had no hope apart from Jesus. There's a lot of similarities. There are some differences too. I mean, you notice that Jairus is a well-to-do member of the community, well-respected. Therefore, he comes face-to-face with Jesus. Yes, he kneels, but he comes to Jesus up front and kneels before him and tells him what he wants. Uh, this woman who's been bleeding for 12 years is too ashamed to do that. She cannot come in front of Jesus. She sneaks up behind Jesus and merely touches him, doing so silently. But they both had faith reminding us of the necessity of faith when it comes to coming to Jesus. And of course, we've also talked about the fact that all three characters in this story were unclean. And I want you to hear this because this is a significant part of the story that we often miss. All three of these people, the demon-possessed man and the bleeding woman uh, and, uh, and this young girl who has died, they are all unclean. And yet all of them are touched by Jesus which in that culture meant that Jesus is supposed to be unclean now. But that's not what happens. In all three stories, these unclean people find themselves cleansed physically and spiritually by the touch of Jesus, and Jesus is not now unclean. He has transferred his cleanliness to them versus the opposite. He doesn't get their uncleanness. They get his cleanliness which, by the way, is salvation, right? That's the story of salvation. We were unclean. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were outcast into the family of God. We were not welcome because our sin had separated between us and God, making us enemies before God. 
But God in Christ has done something about that. He has come and died and rose again on our behalf so that when he touches us, we now can become clean because we receive his righteousness and he takes upon himself our sin. And that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is Jesus rises again, something we will celebrate in a few weeks. And because he is alive, we will conquer the grave as well. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians, in the the famous chapter 15, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. And what he means by that is not that we shouldn't have hope in Christ in this life. We should. Jesus is Lord over demons and disease. He is the object of our hope. And if the object of your hope is anything else, it is going to fail you. But when we stand on Christ, the solid rock, that is when we have hope. But not just in this life. Because if that's all we have, Paul says, it's a pity. But our hope transcends the grave because Jesus is Lord also over death, and because he lives, we shall live also. And that is why we do not find ourselves, hopefully, hopeless. We find ourselves filled with hope regardless of our circumstances, whether we have much or whether we have nothing, whether we are well or whether we are sick near to the point of death, we can have hope because our hope is in Christ who is Lord over the demons, He is Lord over diseases, and yes, He is Lord over death. Let's pray.